Welcome, everybody. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Kat Lindley to the, the, the Illusion of Consensus, Consensus podcast. Dr. Lindley is the president of the Global Health Project and uh, a, a family practice physician in the United States. Uh, she has been uh, an advocate against lockdowns and against uh, a, a, a large number of the policies that have uh, that the uh, public health authorities in the United States and, and elsewhere have followed regarding COVID nineteen, and it's been um, it's been a delight to watch her uh, uh, grow a network of physicians, independent minded physicians, who have opposed these policies, uh, and with the goal of restoring trust in in medical practice, restoring public trust in in public health. Um, and uh, recently, she's been uh, a, a very effective advocate, I think, against the uh, to, to, uh, the the new WHO um, pandemic treaty, which in many ways would would stamp in place the kinds of policies, uh, lockdown policies, and other policies that we've uh, that have been deployed to try to address the COVID nineteen crisis, but have actually have caused tremendous collateral harm. Uh, Dr. Lindsay, Lindley, thank you for coming to the podcast. It is an absolute delight to have you here. Um, so I, 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 why don't you start uh, by telling the audience a little bit about your background? Uh, you know, I, I know you have a, have a very interesting background with an experience from, from uh, you when you were little, um, living in a communist country regarding censorship and sort of the use of government power to, to you know, to sort of manipulate science and, and medicine. Why don't, why don't you start with that? And then, uh, you know, we'll, 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 then we, I wanted to talk about, you know, sort of what you saw in 2020. I, I just want to know your origin story. Sure. So I grew up in Yugoslavia. Uh, I was born in 73, so Tito was still the president. And I remember, you know, being a young child, we had to wear a little uniform, white shirt, red um uh, like bandana around our neck with a little hat that had a star on it. And I, I was probably like six, seven years old when he came to Split, where I'm from. Uh, and, you know, we were all on the side waving and things like that. I didn't really understand the implications of the way I grew up until later in life when I came to the States. But, um, you know, so I lived in Yugoslavia. I was there during the Chernobyl and then Tito died in the 80s. So when he died, uh, uh, Yugoslavia became unstable because it, it's, it was uh, formed out of five republics and two provinces. And everyone was trying to get power. So we had for about 10 years lots of instability until it kind of culminated in Balkan War. So when I turned 18, my family um, really wanted me to leave the country. And, and they found me a job in Italy as a nanny. So I lived in Italy for five years. I went to UK for six months. And then eventually I came to the States. You know, I saved enough money to go to college in Florida and then eventually decided to go to medical school. And, you know, when you talk to like American medical students, everyone is like, oh, I wanted to be a doctor uh, when I was a child, you know, and things like that. But I didn't. And I really didn't dream about being a doctor um, because like when you live in communism, you don't really have these dreams like, oh, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a ballerina. It's like you just kind of do whatever you're supposed to do. And um, so I, you know, I was working as a nanny for two ophthalmologists. And one day, uh, Dr. 
Aker walked in the room and he was looking at me and his son doing homework and he goes to me, Kat, why don't you go to medical school? And, you know, I thought about it for a second and I was like, yeah, why don't I? You know, and I did a whole thing and got and, and, and applied and got into medical school. But uh, all of this is kind of significant because of the experiences I had. And until I came to the States, I didn't realize what really censorship in communism was. But I do remember as a child, I wasn't really supposed to talk about the fact that I go to church. You know, I wasn't supposed to say that in school. I definitely wasn't supposed to say that, you know, when my dad works and stuff, because religion is frowned upon in communist countries. And um, so when the pandemic was starting, I saw it through two different sets of eyes. One was the doctor. And I have to say, like at the beginning, you know, that whole fear thing, you know, uh, having this idea that this new thing kind of came across and is spreading everywhere. And, you know, the ticker at the bottom of Fox or CNN, the numbers kept on going up. And then the videos from China, from New York, they had an effect even on me because I, I remember I was in urgent care and I was coming home late at night you know, like 11 o'clock at night, and I would, uh, you know, go have a shower, change my uniform and stuff like that. And one time I remember being in the bathroom and crying because my little one was still coming to bed in the middle of the night, you know. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I bringing home to my kids? You know, that was kind of when we had no idea what's happening. I mean, I, I remember I was... getting uh, emails from nurses writing to me asking me, you know, they, they'd come home, just like you said, they'd come home, they'd change their clothes, and they'd, uh, they they were asking me, is it safe to hug my my husband? And, I, you know, I because they'd seen me in the news, I guess. Uh, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a hard time for many, many medical professionals because people were scared. Yeah, it, it was really hard time. And, you know, and, and then, you know, I had a patient, one of my first patients that came in the urgent care um, was this Spanish lady. She came in saying, I, I think I have a sinus infection. I need an antibiotic. They all want z right? It's like, I need a z and a steroid. And while we were, you know, weighing her and stuff, I was at the nursing station and, you know, we were doing vitals as, we're, as I was talking to her. And I could see her all too sad. And she's talking normal, you know, like you and me has a little bit of congestion. But that all too sad was in the 80s. And, uh, you know, in, in a hospital, when you have autosat below 92, you're like, okay, I need to do something. And then this was like in the 80s and she's talking normal. And and that was like, you know, when they said, uh, don't see the patients in, in, in a clinic, I kind of did all the way through. And then, you know, but I had to send her to the hospital because this was when we, when we didn't know anything, you know, we didn't know there was hydroxy or anything like that. And... Uh, Next thing I know, next time I came to the clinic, they told me that she was uh, transported to Fort Worth and that she died, uh, you know, intubated and that she died. So that was another first experience. And then I remember in the middle of the night talking to a friend of mine whose family is from Russia. So we kind of both get this communism thing. And I was telling her about everything happening. And she goes to me, Kat, you're having uh, PTSD, like flashbacks. You're remembering stuff. And I thought about it for a second and I'm like, Yes, because like what I started recognizing is fear. I started recognizing that they were using this tactic of fear because, you know, at that time they were saying no one can go out. Only essential personnel can, can be out. You know, uh, 
Then they started saying, well, you have to be six feet apart. You have to wear a mask. They had elderly go buy groceries early in the morning so they're not exposed to everyone else. So I started recognizing that. And that's kind of what happens in communism, these totalitarian regimes, where they have, first of all, fear. You fear something. And then they start saying, well, if you do this, I'll let you do that. And then when they figure out that you're not really complying with all that, then they say, well, now, if you don't do this, there are going to be consequences. And so I saw this pandemic from different set of eyes. And then as a doctor, the things that woke me up to not trust the system itself was actually early on with CDC. In a hospital, uh, every year I had to get fitted for uh, N95 to make sure that it that it's right fit. I've always been a medium and I always used to complain, why do I have to do this? Because I've never changed the size. And I don't know if you remember, but they put like a little plastic helmet over your head and then they uh, spray saccharin in the mask. And if you, you know, in this helmet and you're wearing a mask and if you can taste the saccharin in your mouth, you don't have a good fit. So initially it started, you have to wear the full suit, you know, the yellow plastic uh, suit, the gloves, uh, the visor, N95 mask, everything had to be perfect, but they ran out of it, right? China wasn't sending it. Then they said, well, you can wear just N95, that's okay. So they ran out of those and we started wearing the the other N95, that's not truly N95, I forget what they call it. And then they said, well, surgical mask is okay. Well, we all know surgical mask does nothing. But at one point they said, wear a bandana. And that's why I was like, okay, I'm done, you know. So uh, I kind of woke yeah. up early on. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was striking watching public health officials and, and like prominent ones like Tony Fauci. Um, and, and, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of knew the literature about masking a little bit about masking and protecting protection against influenza spread in populations. And, uh, you know, that that literature, I mean, I, I hadn't like looked at it in a while, but my, my recollection about literature was that it was there was not really good evidence. Uh, randomized evidence that that it worked at a population level, and so when Tony Fauci in February 2020 said uh, to the American public, you know, the masks probably don't do anything, um, I, I thought, okay, he's he's saying what the what, what the scientific uh, consensus was, um, and then to my shock and surprise, there was a there was a rapid shift in within a month. There was no new evidence. There was no published studies that came out. There was nothing. Nothing, no high quality, no randomized studies, nothing at all. And yet the entire public health establishment shifted over on a dime to say cloth masks work. You should wear a cloth mask. Here's how you, the Surgeon General of the United States did a video show, <laughs> describing to people how to take a T-shirt and turn it into a cloth mask. And, um, and then I remember Tony Fauci coming on TV and saying, you know, I was lying to you in February. I needed to, wow. we needed to do that. It was the right thing to do because we wanted to preserve the masks for medical personnel. And I thought, okay, this is the end of any trust that people are going to have. Because once a public health professional is admitted to lying, has actually lied and then and embraced the lie as if it were a noble thing to do, why would anybody trust that public health professional? Why would pe- people trust, especially when someone like Tony Fauci is at the uh, sort of the face of American public health, why would anyone trust American public health at all now that? Uh, that now that the the principle has been established that American public health can manipulate you, w- w- even 
to the point where they'll tell you things that they don't believe. The irony, of course, was that he was telling the truth in, in February and not telling the truth about the about the literature in, in March. He was lying about lying. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it was, I mean, I, I think we shared the same kind of skepticism very early on. So, so okay, so 2020, you, you, you say, okay, something's not right. And you, you think back and you think, say, okay, my, I've seen this before uh, when I was little. Um, and uh, so tell, tell me, so how did you, so you, did you start to speak up publicly in 2020? Did you start then, or, or when did the Global Health Project come about? So, um, I didn't really start speaking out publicly yet. Pretty much what I did at that point is ignore the noise and take care of my patients. So when people were sick, you know, I was already, I was doing some shifts in urgent care to supplement the fact that I opened my own practice uh, while I was waiting, you know, to kind of get my practice going. So what I ended up doing is just concentrate on what I can do in my own community. So when people were sick, I started treating them. You know, I I was connected with the freedom movement a little bit because before all this, I was I, I am and I've always been a firm believer that socialized medicine doesn't work. Medicare for all doesn't work. Uh, Obamacare doesn't work. Uh, one size fits all doesn't work. And I always felt that that's a way to introduce socialism into government because healthcare is a huge bureaucracy. And if you can have government completely control healthcare. You know, you have a potential of deciding the longevity of a population. Plus, you can decide how to, you know, which protocols to use or whatever. So I've always fought that. So even before this, I was kind of involved with the Trump administration on several bills. So that transparency in healthcare executive order that he passed that hospital have to um, kind of announce the pricing. That was one of the bills that one of my groups worked with because I was doing direct primary care, which is independent practice of medicine. And what we've shown that you can actually have blood work, radiology, medicine outside of the system, cash price is a lot cheaper than the system itself. And I think, you know, for whether you like Trump or not, he understood that free market works. So, um, so I kind of knew all of these giants in the freedom movement, you know, like Peter McCullough, Ryan Cole, Richard Urso, from those uh, meetings early before COVID. So I really just followed what they're doing. And uh, Peter and I kind of live close by. So he used to send me patients all the time when he would get too busy. So I really just took care of my patients. And then uh, I've been involved always with Texas uh, American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons. And they uh, organized an event in, um, I think it was in Tyler, Texas, I forget. But it was, you know, speaking out about what's going on. And Peter McCullough was there and Richard Urso. And that's like the first time I took the stage. But what I spoke about was actually not necessarily the COVID itself, but more about the lockdown, the mandates, the loss of freedom. Because... um, in my opinion, it's never been about necessarily the lockdown, the vaccine, the mask. It's always been about the mandate. And the reason I say that, America is a free world, free country. And Americans, and I mean this really in a good way. It's, it's just the way I speak. Sometimes people misunderstand what I'm trying to say. But Americans are great people, but a little bit naive. 
In a sense, they never had their freedom taken away from them. They never, no one really attacked America. You know, you talk, if, if you want to talk about Second World War, you know, the Hawaii were attacked, but the mainland wasn't. America entered the war and fought the war really in Europe and in Japan, but then we didn't really uh, fight it on their soil. So I always viewed this whole thing as really f first real attack on America were these mandates. And we all kind of rolled over. We all did, right? They, when they said lockdowns, we rolled over. We said, okay, let's do it. And then when we realized what they're trying to do, people started rebelling against it. But every time we, we said yes, they took a little bit of our freedom away. So when I spoke out for the first time, I really spoke out about the fact that America is the last kind of last man standing because I saw this whole thing as a really um, global attack on freedom. It really, I didn't see it as a health issue as much as the global attack on freedom. And you were, and you were of course, you're in Texas, which was, uh, I mean, I live in California. My kids didn't go to see the inside of a classroom for a year and a half. Um, you know, businesses were closed. The, the, there was like a general sense of, of fear put out by the government, like with, you know, the, mm -hmm. you're tracking uh, positivity numbers to decide whether you're allowed to, you know, uh, if you leave, if you leave your county, you have to quarantine for a few, you know, two weeks. I mean, things like things like this were were in the air in 2020, and I I was like I was stunned because I, I I knew this was not consistent with the uh, the pandemic plans. Of course, there was all this like uh, this evidence that there was this collateral damage that was happening um, as a consequence, of collateral health damage, damage to people skipping basic cancer screening, for instance. Uh, children going being locked out of school meant that. They're going to live a lifetime of, 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 of you know, if they have learning loss, that there's a long literature that suggests that they would live a lifetime of less, uh, le less prosperity, likely, more likely to live in poverty uh, and worse health. Uh, and so you had this like, uh, you had this backdrop of like uh, this difference between like what I knew that we knew before the pandemic about these policies, how they were tremendously damaging they were, and yet we were following them anyways. But you lived in Texas. It was it was more free there, right? Um, it was, but you but know, you I was on a school board, um, and I have five children, and uh, it was one of those things. You know, I had to watch my youngest son. Uh, so Sam was uh, probably like seven at the time, and you know, and he would wake up at ten o'clock, you know, jump out of bed, and ten thirty have a Zoom, and you had this teacher trying to get these 30 kids or whatever to actually try to learn something for an hour and a half, uh, you know, during the lockdown when they, when they had to stay home. So that was really hard to watch and see. And then once we had a period where we had to do masking as well. And so the kids had to wear masks. So, you know, when I spoke, I spoke like as a mom, I always spoke about as a mom, I spoke as, as a school board member, uh, you know, as a doctor. And then, for me, was actually what's going on with kids was a huge issue because we all know that kids, especially the younger ones, have to see the face to, to kind of uh, make a connection between social cues and the words that are being said. But you had this whole generation that lost a lot of time because we made them wear a mask. And um, it was very hard. But you're right. Texas was totally different than California or Michigan or 
places like that. And of course, you were you were looking more globally because of your because of your background, and your experience. So so it made sense that you would speak up. Um, so so you you um, you start to speak up publicly. Did you face a lot of backlash when you started to speak up publicly? No. Um, you know, kind of when I speak, I really just uh, I really just tell the truth, and a lot of it comes from my own experiences, and it's very hard to attack me on my own experiences and my point of view because I'm the one that actually experienced that. And I'm telling you, I'm giving you a warning yeah. what I see it's happening and can happen to us. So I was kind of always lucky, you know, to, um, I, I wasn't one of those that like went on Twitter and attacked, you know, different pharmacies because they were not giving my patients medication. I just found the pharmacy that would. You know, I, I I think I was just like not looking for comfort. I was just doing my job and but, pretty yeah, much so like staying under the radar. But, but a lot of physicians that would take positions like you, uh, maybe it's because they worked within um, healthcare systems where they're essentially employees or whatever, that, that they would face some backlash internally. That I had a lot of physicians call me and tell me or write to me and tell me that they were uh, they were having trouble with with their with with their work because they because of of of, of uh, how they were treating the patients or whatnot. Um, was it partly because you were an independent medical practice you were able to avoid that? Yes, one hundred percent. And uh, I do think that the reason the trust has been lost between patient and physicians is the fact that physicians are kind of slaves to the system. Uh, this didn't happen. By chance, you know, if you look at the education system itself, you can tell that issues that we're having in education probably started 20 years ago. You know, the indoctrination, the certain things, you know, one of the things that I fought naturally when it came to my kids' schooling was Common Core math because they wanted my kids to write down, you know, three plus eight is 11, but they wanted them to write it uh, and show it full page of work how they got to 11. And I kept on arguing, well, 3 plus 8 is always going to be 11, no matter how many times you want to. So just, why don't you just ask the child what the result is, you know. So I always thought that. But the same thing happened in medical uh, world, too, that people didn't really realize it's happening. There was this huge push to buy private practices, right? The big uh, medical groups, the hospital systems, the academic centers, they're all buying practices and these doctors are retiring, you know, they're coming with certain number of patients and then they will go to residents who just graduated medical school and medical school education kept on going up and up and up. So you have these residents graduating with like initially was maybe $100,000, but now it's like two fifty, dollars $300,000 debt that they have even before they get a job. So when the hospital system comes and says, hey, uh, on the first day, I'm going to pay you $250,000 and you're going to get a bonus for relocation and your CMEs are going to get paid and you get a month vacation. You know, that's, those are kind of numbers that people are like, oh my gosh, this is going to save me. But I think what no one realizes by signing these contracts, it's almost like you signed your soul away. And I don't think it was intentional necessarily, but when you work within the system, and for example, a corporate practice of medicine is illegal in Texas, but it's practiced by everyone. Because if you work in a system and system tells you, if you want to order a CAT scan or MRI, you have to order it at our radiology center 
or you have to send your patients to our cardiologist and not the private cardiologist that you might like better. That's the system that's telling you what to do, and that's corporate practice of medicine. So the doctors became indebted to the system, and the ones that tried to do the best they could for their patients, they, were, they slapped their hands because the system is paid by the government through Medicare, the CMS, Medicaid, and stuff like that. And the system like protocols. They don't like the free-thinking um, you know, uh, doctors. And that's kind of... We were primed for this crisis in medicine. Okay. So, I mean, that's a lot to take in. So you're saying, so what you're saying is that uh, a lot of the doctors that, uh, that, that sort of fell in line with public health orders and, and uh, would, you know, sort, sort of make these, make these statements, sort of confident statements, they, in part, they were doing this because it was in their economic interest to do so. They were part of a healthcare system or an employee of a healthcare system, and if they if they they didn't, they might uh, they, they 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 might face some um, some backlash from it. I mean, I think, uh, for instance, you mentioned Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, uh, who who was a Baylor professor of medicine, a very distinguished one with a long track record in publish in publishing um, um, and and in patient care. And when he spoke up against uh, the 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 the, the um, the, the sort of public health establishment, he faced a, a tremendous pressure from within Baylor itself, if I understand correctly. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of doctors, I think, looked at that and thought, thought okay, should I speak up or should I not speak up and, and, sh- and chose not to because, you know, it's, it's they need to feed their families, they need to pay their mortgages, their doctors are people like everybody else. Um, uh, so, yeah. so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's interesting. Cause like we, you, you think about, uh, well, I'll, I'll, you say, okay, well, all these people in medicine, all these people in public health, they agree with Tony Fauci because they didn't say anything with Tony Fauci spit, but, but in fact, they may not have, they just may have censored themselves because they, they perceived a threat to their professional lives if they spoke up. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that that's exactly what happened. And I'm not saying that these are bad people, you know, uh, bad doctors. It's just they're human beings. They have families, you know, they, they have uh, mortgages to make. And I think the ones, there, there were plenty of them who actually probably tried to work within the system and not create waves, but take care of their patients. Uh, but then they did see, you know, uh, Peter McCullough and what happened to him. Like you said, very distinguished physician with lots of uh, different awards well-known in the community, they went after him just because he tried to do the right thing. And then even Aaron Kirarty later on, when he didn't want to take the vaccine and mandate the, the public, you know, walking him out of the hospital and things like that. And it's not easy to, you know, to see your colleagues, something like that happening to them and then say, well, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. So I think there are a lot of doc- great doctors within the system who were not creating waves. They just did the best they could. They treated their patients kind of under the radar. But then there are others who are still totally bought into this whole narrative and they're going along with it. How they still can do it, I have no idea. But, um, you know, I would say this was not only crisis of medical profession. This was a crisis. This was a human crisis because you can find any profession and find same type of response. Lawyers are doing the same things. 
not many are actually picking up these lawsuits that we know most likely have merit, but most of them are not. They're like, I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm just going to go start, keep billing my clients, whatever I'm billing, do whatever I have to do and follow the narrative. Okay, so let's 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 skip forward to the the global health project. So tell 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 uh, tell me about tell the audience about what the global health project is. How did it get founded? What was the basis of it, and uh, what it, what are its main aims? So we started, um, you know, the global health project last summer. It was just a different group of people, physicians, professionals, advocates, parents, and the idea was how do we tell the story to this movable middle that maybe is realizing something is wrong, but they're not sure what to do with it. How do we get them to actually try to figure out what we have seen? And we even did an analysis to see who do we want to tell this story? We, because I was convinced that children should tell the story. I was convinced that if children spoke out about their experiences, the parents are going to look at it and say, oh my gosh, what have we done? So we did like parents, children, and physicians. And the outcome was that actually people wanted to hear from physicians. And the reason why is because most people felt that if physicians who are smart, who should know better, who should have realized that from a medical standpoint, something was not wrong, if they fell for it, then it's okay that I fall, that I fell for it too. And then, you know, we just look for... Um, colleagues who actually had their own journey to this. And we're sharing um, six stories of different healthcare professionals, and they're telling their story. So we have uh, someone, uh, she's actually a good friend of mine, who initially recommended vaccines to elderly because she thought that there is a benefit to it until she started reading and realizing there is none. There is one physician who took, I believe, two vaccines until he realized that the whole thing was a mess. And uh, the idea is to, by sharing these stories, there are going to be physicians who recognize themselves in this and say, you know what? Like for me, it was bandana, right? For others, it was something else. And they can say, the system really is broken and maybe we shouldn't be listening to everything it's telling us. And the other side of it is... Okay, I guess... For, yes, Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, so please finish. And I was just going to say the other, yeah, the other aim of this. Of yeah, the other aim of this uh, story, these videos we're sharing, is to actually have people look at this and say, you know what? I'm going to take what they're telling me, how they recognize the system is broken, and go ask my doctor the same questions, and say, what do you think about the vaccines, or what do you think about CDC saying that we should wear masks, or what do you think about our children? having to take the vaccine when we know that they have natural immunity at this point, because we don't want things like this to happen again. You know, I would like to be able to trust what CDC is telling me. I would like to be able to read uh, journal articles in Lancet and other uh, medical journals and, and believe that the narrative is true. But I think at this point, we all recognize that it's not, you know, not everything is good in Kansas, as we say. Yeah. So, so the goal, the goal of the Global Health Project then is is uh, is is actually uh, it's not it's not particularly aimed directly at physicians. It's or the medical care system or or the public health system, but the the the, the broader public 
to try to say, here's, uh, here's what we've, uh, the, 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 the folks who have signed up for this project um, are seeing with that, based on our experiences, based on, on our, our knowledge. Um, and here, here's what's gone wrong. And, and of course, uh, uh, and, and then a, and a program for how to fix, fix things. Um, I mean, just, just, just one, one quick note on what you said. I, I mean, I, I personally, uh, in 2021, uh, looking at the evidence, thought that the vaccine was a good idea for older people. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I, 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 um, the reason was, was based on my own independent assessment of what the randomized trials were saying and of what the epidemiological evidence was saying. Um, and I, but I think it, it just highlights, I mean, I was against the, the mandates. I thought the mandates were a terrible idea mm-hmm. and I did not recommend it, the vaccines for children. I think, you know, p- physicians can look at the data independently and come to different conclusions. It's, it's how we learn, I think, as physicians is we have these kind of conversations with each other. Um, it, it, but in an environment where, uh, you know, essentially this oppressive environment where if you say uh, something that's against public health, the, 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 phys- the physician, um, you know, board, the boards will come after you. It makes it very, very difficult to have an honest, nuanced conversation around something like this. Um, and I think you know, and that's I, an important just, part. The, converse, the conversation is nuanced. People don't get that things are not black and white. You have to look at... Uh, the person in the middle of this whole thing. And you have to like figure out these little pieces and put them together. And that's probably the hardest thing that happened during the pandemic, the fact that we were not allowed to talk, right? We were not allowed to have this discussion. The side that thought that vaccines are great wouldn't have the conversation. And, and, and you know, that, that's probably one of the biggest crimes in science, the fact that we were not talking to each other we're just talking at each other because there, there is no resolution you, you, if you can converse and if you get if you speak uh with some reservations about the vaccines you know I, I i like i said i was an advocate for the vaccine for older people in 2021 i was also a big advocate for recognizing the, that immunity after covid recovery was a really important phenomenon and that, that 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 should affect whether someone should be recommended to take or not take the vaccine um I thought that the scientific evidence very strongly suggested that. I was, it stunned me that public health actively ignored that. Um, uh, but I, th- I think these are, again, these are like diff- nuanced conversations based on reads of data. It's something as conversations that normally physicians would have with their patients. But if you said anything that went against the, uh, everyone must have a vaccine, two vaccines, three vaccines in their arm or else, um, well, then all of a sudden you're an anti-vaxxer. Um, it, and it was a slur. It was, it was aimed at trying to uh, exclude people, pe- even people with a lot of credentials and a lot of knowledge and an ability to read data from the conversation. It, it was a, it was a, it was essentially a desire to it was it was a, a tactic to end the conversation uh, by force without actually winning the argument. Um, you know, this, this sort of slur of calling someone an anti-vaxxer, I'm sure. I'm sure you faced this kind of kind of uh, uh, thing in, uh, in when when you started to speak up and put your head above the parapet, um, and you know I, I completely agree with you, Kat. It was it was a terrible thing. It, it was it's the it's the end of our ability to reason if we can't speak with each other openly and plainly and 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 reason with each other about uh, complicated data and facts. We really can't learn. Yeah, I always shared the story. You know, one of my best friends in medical school is Jewish and I'm Christian. And we used to have these great debates about Bible, but we disagreed about one big thing. We disagreed about Jesus, right? 
but we still remained great friends and had great talks. And I learned a lot of stuff from him and he probably learned some stuff from me. But we always ended at the end of the day still as great friends. And if we did the same thing from the beginning and actually had these debates with each other and saying, well, I don't think masks work. And this one, well, I think they do work because of this. We could have found this middle that would have been okay for everyone. And I think a lot of people would not have had to suffer if we were able to talk. And that's, I think, where we abandoned the scientific spirit, really. Yeah. Okay, so one of the major uh, uh, pieces of advocacy that the Global Health Project has is its advocacy against these new World Health Organization pandemic treaty. Um, can you tell the audience something about what this treaty actually says? Like this, this new, no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not yet in force. I think uh, the, the votes on it are going to take some years. Uh, there's also this international health regulation revisions. Um, to, so tell the audience a little bit about what, uh, what, what, what is the World Health Organization up to? Um, and what do you, what's your view on, on sort of whether these, these, these uh, kinds of initiatives are wise or, I mean, I think I know the answer, um, but, uh, but uh, why don't we have a conversation about the World Health Organization and what the Global Health Project is uh, saying and doing about the World Health Organization's activities uh, after the pandemic? So, the speci- you know, specifically, the, one of the reasons the Global Health Project came together was to discuss what, ha- what has happened so it doesn't happen again. And the hashtag that we like to use is never again. The reason why is because of what's going on with WHO, for example. And you're right, they are negotiating the pandemic treaty and the amendments to the IHR. The purpose of both is actually the same. Uh, The idea is with these amendments and the treaty, uh, the director general would be given more powers to, in an event that there is some kind of uh, health uh, potential emergency, uh, they could assess, you know, what's going on. And then if he declares it that it is an emergency, it would give powers to WHO to go into the country. And actually, um, it used to be recommendations, but now they're, be- they're going to become obligations. They would decide how we would respond to whatever happens. And if you couple that with the fact that uh, WHO in June adopted the digital health passport that European Union used during COVID. So if there is something that happens in the future, Director General can say, you need digital health passport, you need to have vaccines. They can say what type of treatments we can offer to the patients, what type of tests we can have. So everything that happened would happen again, but this time it wouldn't be recommendations from WHO, it would be actually uh, something that they would implement in every country that's a member of the WHO. The votes on this are going to be in May of next year. And um, it's kind of funny watching uh, Tedros tweet on Twitter and say, we are not going after your national sovereignty. Uh, and for pandemic treaty part, that might be kind of technically true because they don't really write it that way. But if you look at the amendments to the IHR, it really they do go after uh, the national sovereignty. And the reason why is if you have this entity that has nothing to do with your country, come and say, you have to put all your health resources and this is how you do it. They are attacking our national sovereignty because they're attacking this fundamental relationship between physician and patient, exactly what happened in these past uh, two, three years. 
So, um, you know, the threat is real. Some people will say our constitution is going to protect us. There's questions there. And if you read uh, Brownstone or Epoch Times, uh, Dr. Francis Boyle, who's a lawyer in constitutional law, will actually say that he also fears what can be done because uh, this is going directly through our HHS and the president can also sign this as an executive order. The treaty needs to be ratified in the Senate. But recently, Senator Johnson tried to pass a bill to reinforce that. And the bill pretty much said, if there is any kind of treaty, it has to be ratified by the Senate, which would have been great if it passed, but it didn't. So where does that leave us? If the bill didn't pass, do we go to what it used to be the rule or can they implement a new? Who knows? I would say that uh, consensus is we're not exactly sure if they can implement it, except for the fact that IHR, the international health regulations, are already a part of our international law. So that only really needs a signature or uh, acceptance from HHS. So I would say it's a real danger and you should be aware of it. Okay, so just uh, just so we can like flesh this out, I, I, I'll place the 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 devil's advocate because though yes. I think we agree pretty much on 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 every aspect of this. So so the the argument on the other side might be that look during this pandemic a huge problem was that there was insufficient international coordination. Some countries, uh, you know, locked down hard and, and did essentially exactly what the WHO recommended. Uh, you know, Peru, for instance, um, and other countries uh, such as Sweden didn't. Um, and uh, you have a you, you uh, and if 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 you have a a, a threat like this vac- virus and it's spreading everywhere, um, if you don't if you have one country or a small number of countries uh, decide that they're not going to uh, abide by these uh, these 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 measures, you the whole world will be a threat. You have to have some kind of, of coordinated uh, uh, power that uh, that allows the kinds of interventions, you know, lockdowns or whatnot, to get rid of these threats that threaten the lives of everybody. And one weak link, one one country that says no threatens us all. Uh, so, what would you what would you say to that? So, a couple of things. One is you're coming from the public health angle, and I'm coming from the, the doctor who actually sees patients angle. And for me, one size fits all never worked because, you know, I have to take in in, uh, account the person standing in front of me and how that person is going to be affected by this. Um, And even when it comes to mandate, like even if this vaccine was a great vaccine and worked and and everything was wonderful and we had no issues with it, I would say that even then you would have to look at vaccine and the patient in front of you and say, does this person benefit from it or not? So none of those decisions we were allowed to make because of the fact that they tried to push this one size fit all. And then uh, another example in my favor, I would say of my argument was Sweden. Sweden said, to hell with you all, we're gonna do it our way. And Sweden was right, right? So that's another favor on my point. And the other one was even WHO. So WHO did actually something really good in India. In uh, I always forget the province, Uttar Pradesh. I, I don't know if you remember which province it was, but they actually yeah, gave them Pradesh, this. Yeah. yeah, they gave them this kit with ivermectin. And when the people, when the COVID was happening, they gave them everything they needed, and they didn't have high numbers of COVID. 
So on one side, they actually did a good thing, but to the rest of the world, they were saying, ivermectin is bad, don't give it, you're not allowed to do it. So I would say that having recommendations on things that we know work, no one would fault anyone for trying to help, but asking the world to be in a lockstep and do one size fit all when we know that, you know, Australia maybe is in wintertime and we are in summertime, they're not taking consideration any variables. And I would say that in medicine and science, there are many variables that we need to take into account and one size fits all will never work. So, and, and I just don't like the idea of, uh, you know, a body that has nothing to do with our own country and our own values telling us you must do it this way. And that would be, you know, returning back to the mandate. You have to do it this way. And if you don't, you know, what's going to happen to you? The reason this is also an issue is, so you have WHO trying to regulate the health, but then you have United Nations. United Nations is actually right now pushing for, for a CBDC. So if you combine the digital health passport from WHO and what they want to do based on our health and United Nations initiative on CBDC and you put them together, how far away are you from a China social score credit system that we all know it's not really a conspiracy theory anymore. We are really just steps away from something like that. So, you know, if you don't have all your vaccines, they can say, well, you don't deserve, first of all, you can't travel, but then maybe you don't have enough social points to go to the movies or go to the theater or go to the restaurant or whatever, you know. I would just say Well, we that- don't have to, this is not even theoretical, Pat. I mean, this happened in Canada. In Canada, uh, you had... Uh, a group of truckers organize a tremendous protest against a vaccine mandate and the leaders of that movement, they lost their bank accounts. Um, the, essentially like the, 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 the Canadian government acted like an authoritarian power said, look, you can't protest. If you do protest, uh, you, your, your ability to participate in basic so activities like banking are, are going to be removed from you. And they imposed a, a policy where if you, uh, weren't vaccinated, you couldn't go on public transport. You couldn't go on trains. You couldn't go on on, on airplanes. So it's not it's not theoretical at all, Kat. I I, I think yeah. I think you're absolutely right about this. Um, and you know, recently, so let me in just the, go ahead. Now I was just going to say the oh, FBI you know, hearings gonna... that just happened two days ago. One of the congressmen asked uh, uh, the FBI director Ray, uh, did uh, it was I believe representing Massey. He asked him, did government ask uh, Bank of America for financial records for people who bought guns, right? And this is, I'm not talking about Second Amendment guns, whatever, just the fact that the government has asked a financial institution for the records of whoever bought guns, and they just gave it to them without a subpoena or anything like that. So it's happening in our own country already, where a lot of our financial uh, transactions are out there and FBI has asked for them and it's being shared. Okay, so just to come back to the conversation about WHO, um, so let me just try to summarize your arguments, which I agree with, by the way. So, so what, one is that um, that uh, if you if you have a lockstep treaty like this that, that that enforces one pandemic response, you're not going to get uh, countries and areas 
that try different ways so you can learn, right? So you're not going to get another Sweden, where which demonstrated to the world that lockdowns, um, you know, ma mandatory lockdowns, closed schools, all those all those draconian policies were not necessary to protect the population. Sweden has lower all-cause excess death rates through the whole pandemic than than the rest of Europe. Um, so what was the what was the, what was bought by those lockdowns that the, many other countries followed? You would never get a Sweden. You'd never get a, a counterexample. You never you never get an Uttar Pradesh. Although Uttar Pradesh, I have to say, there's we can talk about whether that worked or not. But that but the point is that whether it worked or not, um, you will, allowing countries and regions to try different experiments allows us to learn about how to manage something deadly like this. Uh, and and a, a treaty that prevents that actually may lock us into a a disastrously uh, a, a disastrous policy that harms everybody with no capacity of learning to do something different, right? So that that's one. Um, and then related to that, I, I thought it was a really interesting response you had that th there's a distinction between public health and medicine. And a public health uh, sort of authority saying everyone must do X isn't taking into account the nuances of what patient circumstances are. Different patients are going to have different um, different needs, and there's no way a single authority can know what those needs are. Uh, and we, as, as, in, as in medicine, have an ethical obligation to treat the patient in front of us, not as a, as, as a patient, not as a as a cog in a mach, uh, in a big machine. Um, if the if the patients uh, if it's right for the patient to do something to 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 not abide by some idea that public health wants it to do, what wants the patient to do, well then your obligation as a doctor is to like stand up for the patient, not stand up for public health. I think, um, and so I th and, and so you're saying that the World Health Organization treaty, and I, I agree, I think uh, violates both of those two principles: one of sub subsidiarity uh, of of uh, where different areas might have different different needs, and then one of, of medical ethics that pay, that we have an obligation to stand up for our patients, not so much so as not, not, they're not just they're not just they're just they're individual people that, that have autonomy and, and, and rights and, and physicians have an obligation to stand up for them, not so that they fit into pub, what public health wants, but so that they can they can fit into what they need for their own life and for their own health. You know, it's, it goes back to that deep question of humanity, really, ethics and humanity. Uh, is the life of one person more important than lives of many? You know, and uh, I would say for me as a physician, the life of one person is as important as, as life of many. And, uh, you know, it, it's a very hard question and people look at it from different view. I would say the public health and, you know, this is yours. I'm just going to tell you my opinion. So, you know, I'm not an expert in public health. But the way I see public health developing, it used to be something, you know, physicians went into public health and they had basic understanding of medicine, science and everything. And they were looking at how to make things better for larger population, what works, what doesn't. But now you have like this new movement and a lot of new people who are going into public health don't necessarily have that same understanding of what life medicine is, the art, the nuances, the needs. And they just look at this statistics. It's more about numbers than the actual life in front of you. And I think when you when you lose sight of that life in front of you, that's when we get into this deeper trouble 
where, um, you know, I always say when I read stories about, you know, child trafficking or pedophiles or stuff like that, if I read an article about it, I mourn for that child. But if I actually, and let's say it's a, a, you know, 13, 14 year old child, if I actually read that number 13 year old child and I put my son's name there because I have a 13 year old son, it has such a different impact because I just humanized that number. And I think that's the biggest threat with these treaties and amendments that we dehumanize uh, what's happening and just looking at it from the statistical modeling side and look at what is you know the outcome instead of looking at life itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I like that formulation. I, I mean, I, I do think that public health is tremendously important, Kat. I think it is, it's played a tremendously freeing role, right? So, uh, and, and some things in public health require collective action, right? Large-scale sanitation systems are not something that I personally, one by no, one, would expect people to do. So, I just so think that they, they need to look at hand, more than a number, right? That's all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the key thing is is uh, if public health is de, de, it, it, it takes on a dehumanizing philosophy that says, look, I don't care what uh, your individual circumstances are, you must comply with what we want you to do. Um, I mean, it just takes on a very, very different different uh, kind of valence. I, I, whereas like some uh, an investment in public health to, uh, to uh, uh, clean drinking water or something, th- that's a tremendously freeing investment potentially. I mean, you have to still do, you have still have to be careful about the science around this. And, and of course, like uh, try, try to do, do a lot of, a, a lot of like uh, uh, work to make sure that you're doing the right thing. But the point is that like, it's not collective action per se that's a problem. It's it's an overstepping of the bounds where uh, there's no no space for the in, for the individual patient for the for the for the for the humanity of the of the of the of the people that you're you're thinking about uh, that you're, you're you're legislating around. Um, and no, I think that I that's agree. really the and you're absolutely right that's it's that's the balance and it seems like the balance went has gone too far in one direction. Yeah, it has. Um, and, and okay, you know, so with w- no, I was going to just uh, say with oh, WHO, that's, that's one of the biggest threats that, you know, we're all just going to become a number on these statistics and they're going to lose the, um, the view of what it means to the real human beings. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to finish our, our podcast with uh, we probably have five minutes left with a conversation about what's next. Uh, the, the opposition of the WHO that I mean that's a that's a that's kind of a negative project. You want to stop something bad from happening. What's a positive project that Global Health Project wants to do to restore uh, the trust that the public ought to have in medicine and in public health? How how can public health and medicine earn the trust of the public again? So I always say it starts with you, right? Take your power back in a sense that I think for too long, we've just uh, accepted that, uh, you know, if I'm going to go see a doctor, I'm going to look at my insurance card and whoever they assigned, I'm just going to go there. And whatever they tell me, I'm just, you know, I hate going there, but if I have to wait an hour and a half, whatever, I'm just going to do it. And, you know, we've, we've kind of accepted the system as it is for too long because we thought that we have to. But I think what I would like for everyone to start doing is um, interview your doctor. Find out if they actually share the same exact values as you do. And if they don't, find another one. 
I do for my colleagues, I actually highly recommend uh, leaving the matrix, as I like to say. If you can go and uh, really look into independent practice of medicine, that's really the only way we're going to restore uh, trust and actually even restore medicine because healthcare is a bureaucracy, but medicine is an art. I started my practice uh, with $5,000. I, I actually was getting paid very good money. I was director of a you know, medical outpatient center, but I, I had an idea I wasn't going to stay on. And one day I opened it within a month. Uh, I went with my little doctor back from, you know, the medical school. I had my blood pressure cuff, my otoscope. I bought tests on Amazon. It just requires this one step of courage, just stepping a little bit in faith that I'm going to do something that I always wanted to do, take care of my patients and do the best I can. And for people out there, it's like, you know, take care of your health. You don't have to go see a doctor for every little cold. The system's incentive is to keep people sick so they're going to keep on coming back. For me, the incentive is to keep my patients healthy so they don't have to come to the office as much as needed and they can just text me or call me if they have a question or concern. So it really starts at home with your family, uh, with your community, with your town, the school system. And it's not only about health, it's about your kids' education, your finances, your faith, your growth. Just um, honestly, it's really simple. Take your power back. I know it sounds maybe a little silly, but we have to realize that we are not slaves to the system. Well, uh, Kat, uh, Dr. Lily, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. It's been um, it's it's been fun to learn from you and. Uh, I wish you all the best with the Global Global Health Project. Uh, I, I think that you are working on very important things, uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad for your advocacy during the pandemic. Thanks. Thank you. You take care. Thank you.